This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 68 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, a rational perspective on the plateauing of coronavirus infection cases in South Africa. The founder of Tax Justice SA shares his compelling argument on the eve of a historic high court action that bids to end the ban on tobacco sales. And after bringing South Africans a slice of the Oxford University COVID-19 vaccine, Signia will tomorrow launch a health innovation fund. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. In today's COVID-19 headlines, official data continues to suggest that the peak of South Africa's pandemic is behind us, with distinct declines now evident in both infections and mortalities. On Monday, the country reported 5,377 new virus cases. That's the fifth successive decline for a day and the lowest for any day since June the 23rd, and that's six weeks ago. Active cases, which offset new infections with recoveries, have now fallen in seven of the last eight days. On Monday, South Africa's active cases stood at just over 150,000. That's well down on the peak of 173,500 that was set two weeks earlier. The country's mortality rate remains well below the norm, with South Africa's 516,000 total cases ranked fifth of any country, but its 8,500 deaths only 17th on the global list. With 358,000 South Africans now formally having recovered from the virus, the country ranks fifth in the world on this measure. Globally, total cases rose past 18.5 million today, with total deaths hitting 700,000. More on the data, especially in what it means for South Africa, from Discovery Health CEO Ryan Noach a little later in this program. It's not only in South Africa where rifts have been created over the management of the pandemic. Today, New York City's Health Commissioner, Dr. Oxiris Barbo, resigned over what she believes was the incompetence of the city's high-profile mayor, Bill de Blasio. She complained that instead of being at the strategic center of the response, what she called her department's incomparable disease control expertise was left in the background. Included in the slights against Dr. Barbeau's unit was the mayor's decision to take away its responsibility for contact tracing, which her health department has managed for decades, and give that responsibility to public hospitals which had never done it before. Here's some good news, at least for some of those experiencing lockdown-inspired cabin fever. South African National Parks today announced that accommodation at most of its establishments will reopen on the 14th of August. On the downside, visitors will only be allowed from within the province. 
Interprovincial leisure travel, one of numerous regulations criticized as irrational, is still prohibited. To enforce this rule, guests at SA National Parks will be required to provide proof of residence. Another much criticized regulation, the ban on tobacco sales, will be challenged in the Western Cape High Court tomorrow. We'll hear more on that story from Tax Justice SA's founder, Yusuf Abramji, later in this episode. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Discovery Health's Chief Executive, uh, Dr. Ryan Noach, is with us to help us understand whether a big question uh, can be answered in the affirmative or the negative. Has South Africa's pandemic peaked? Ryan, when I have a look at the data that's available to the public and looking at it from a, a non-actuary, a non-epidemiologist, uh, it does look decidedly like we passed the worst. But how are you reading the data? Alec, thanks for having me again. And uh, it, is, it does look like good news at the moment. And uh, our analytics support consistent reductions in the number of new daily infections reported. That said, we have to be very cautious uh, around the narrative of we've peaked. Uh, I think that caution is for two main reasons. The first is that we should not uh, inform the public or allow the public uh, or every single one of us should not become complacent about non-pharmaceutical interventions. That means that social distancing, personal hygiene, real discipline in the way we're behaving every single day is more critical now than ever if we are to sustain these decelerations. And the second reason is there is always the possibility of a second peak. And even if we have reached the first peak, you know, we could very easily lapse into a second peak, the likes of which we've seen in the United States and Israel and some other countries. Uh, that's quite frightening. So uh, we sh- it's too early to get overly excited. That said, uh, you know, there is reason to be optimistic. We've seen that there have been steady decreases in the rate of new infections reported in most provinces, um, in Gauteng, we seem to have reached a peak in new infections reported around the 15th of July. In the Western Cape, it was as early as the 25th of June. Uh, and as for KZN, we've had now five days of consistent reductions of new infections reported daily. So perhaps it's very early to say, but perhaps even KZN has reached a peak. So across most of the provinces, we're seeing this, and this is very good news. If you look at the attack rates, which really tell the full story, remember that an attack rate is the number of new infections per 100,000 people in the population per day. So this is a, an infection incidence per 100,000 people. Uh, the attack rate for the country is now at 18.8, which is down from a high of 26, uh, and that is a big reduction in the attack rate. Uh, that said, 18.8 is still higher than Europe was at its highest ever point. So we're still up there with a bad outbreak, but uh, definitely improving. The last point to make about this is that all the in- new infection trends could be related to testing patterns. And so we always like to check the infection trend with what's happening in the hospitals, which gives us the story of the downstream morbidity. We know that reliably there's about an 18% hospitalization rate of Discovery Health members who contract COVID-19. We now have a big data set. 
and we see that about 18% are consistently hospitalized. And so what we're seeing in the hospitals tells the story, of course, about the upstream infection rates. And I'm pleased to tell you that in every province except for KZN, we're currently seeing reductions in the daily numbers of new admissions for COVID-19. KZN still on the up there, but as I said, KZN looks like it only reached that peak of new infections five days ago, and it may take 10 days or more before we start seeing alleviated pressure in the hospitals. It's so interesting because you've got your own data set from within Discovery members, millions of members, and there it's, it's very consistent with what we're seeing from the government generally. If we do have this decline, is it not an argument then for getting off the flatlining of our poor economy uh, and opening up things again? Well, you know, we should bow our heads to the wisdom of the government in this regard. I think looking back, the early lockdown was a stroke of genius. Uh, it allowed us to do two things that we otherwise couldn't have done. The one is prepare the infrastructure in the country for the oncoming onslaught, which was always inevitable, but we delayed it through the lockdown and we could prepare and we did prepare. In the public sector, we added beds. In the private sector, we converted general ward beds to ICU beds. We brought in PPE and equipment, oxygen concentrators and ventilators that just weren't in the country. There wasn't enough PPE in the country. We wouldn't have been able to protect healthcare providers. And so on the one hand, infrastructure was upgraded. On the other hand, and for me, very importantly, as a clinician myself, we learned lessons in how to treat COVID-19 from the very bad experiences of developed healthcare economies. And we absorbed like a sponge into our system all these lessons, all the evidence that was emerging, and we were able to deploy this in treating COVID-19 much better. And as a result, it's one of the good reasons why we've got a lower case fatality rate than the rest of the world. So your question is, is it time to release the lockdown? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Unfortunately, I'm not the one to have to make the final decision. I would say the one thing that's very clear is that whatever we do from a regulatory perspective, we absolutely must maintain social distancing. We must maintain personal discipline. Uh, extreme personal hygiene, because those are the interventions that are going to have the biggest difference. My own personal view, Alec, is that the economy is suffering terribly as a result of both the lockdown and COVID-19 itself. Uh, and the sooner we can return people to productive work and that we can start propping up the economy through ensuring maximal productivity, the better. Um, and we do have a sense that people are really struggling out there. Um, and we're seeing that in, you know, in the economic numbers. That said, every country in the world is experiencing this economic contraction linked to COVID-19 at the moment. So we're not alone, though we're deeply empathic to the situation. So overall, we are now seeing that the hospital system in South Africa has managed. Uh, and were it not for that three-week hard lockdown to begin with, which got everything ready or helped to get things ready, it would have been a very different picture from what you're telling us. It looks very much like it. It looks like the work that was done was excellent, and it looks so far like the uh, healthcare system has coped adequately. And from a Discovery Health perspective, I can tell you that we don't know of a single Discovery Health Medical Scheme member 
who didn't get high-quality care through this COVID-19 outbreak. The real heroes here are the people on the front line who delivered the care. They worked in dangerous conditions, long hours, highly stressed, with very full hospitals, yet they delivered outstanding, outstanding care. Um, And, you know, we really must give kudos to the clinical leaders who wrote the policies and guided the clinicians and to the clinicians themselves, doctors, nurses, and allied healthcare workers who delivered the care. That's really where all the credit should lie. It's been quite an extraordinary story, if you think of it from a South African perspective, because we did start late, which helped to get preparation, but it also, uh, on many of the clinicians that I've been talking to on this Inside COVID podcast, they told me they'd been learning from others in the world, and it was almost like they went into battle with proper armor. Uh, there was, a in the initial stages, there was concerns within the ICU units, for instance, that they would repeat the 20% mortality rate that they'd seen in ICU workers in, say, Italy, and yet it's been far lower than that in South Africa. So all around, it's a, a pretty good story for the way that, those scientists, those professionals in this country have, have stood up and shown themselves to be amongst the world's best. Yeah, three responses there. The first is our mortality rate of patients admitted to hospital is 7%. Um, that's all ward types, 7% for Discovery Health members. That's much lower, as you say, than the hospital experience in other parts of the world. Um, and so we can be proud of that, and that's through good care, through applying the learnings, as you say. I think the second point is there were a few clinical moments and uh, epiphanies almost, which have changed the way COVID-19 is treated, which we benefited from uh, through our late outbreak relative to the rest of the world, relative to Europe and the USA, one should say. Um, And those are largely, you know, the use of dexamethasone or corticosteroids, um, in the treatment of severely ill patients who are in respiratory distress and requiring hospitalization or ICU care. And credit there to our clinical leaders, um, to people who are teachers of mine and colleagues of mine now, who included dexamethasone in the South African critical care protocols, uh, particularly Prof Guy Richards did as early as, as March this year. Uh, I think the second big insight was the uh, the use of thrombolytics, the recognition that coagulation, that clotting of the blood, thrombosis, is actually a big part of the pathophysiology of this disease and responsible for much of the clinical manifestation. And so we now, very early in the treatment of severely ill patients, ensure that we thin their blood. We use anticoagulants. I think the third thing is that typically we have guidelines around when to ventilate patients. Um, And those guidelines are consistent and consistently applied in pneumonia, all the different pneumonias we see. We've learned that in COVID-19, we need to apply a much higher threshold before ventilation. The outcomes of ventilated patients are poor. And so we wait much longer before we ventilate. And so that's another insight that's made a huge difference. And then prior to that ventilation, two things that we do that we've learned. The one is this high-flow oxygen that we deliver uh, through special high-flow oxygen devices. And the second is we position the patients to recruit parts of the lung that are still healthy. We put them on their stomachs, for example, which is called prone positioning, um, in order to recruit basal parts of the lung that one typically doesn't use um, when you're lying on your back. 
And these kind of insights have absolutely changed the way we, we treat the disease. Uh, today, uh, we've heard that, uh, you know, remdesivir, uh, the antiviral agent which Gilead brought to market, is now going to be available in South Africa. Uh, Discovery Health Medical Scheme will fund it uh, for a particular specific group of patients where the evidence shows that it works. Um, and it's relevant to severely ill patients, again, who are in hospital. It's given intravenously. Uh, but we have that access and um, and the the benefit of understanding those lessons as well. So, you know, those are just some of the clinical changes that have emerged from the world, from the evidence that's been published that we can now use to treat people. And one of the reasons why we're getting these great outcomes that we didn't see in New York and in Italy and in Spain, some of these badly hit early countries, France as well. Dexamethasone and remdesivir, two, two words that I wouldn't have dreamt uh, in my vocabulary would be was so important, but they certainly have uh, have yeah. come into the common parlance. Just to close off with, is it likely that COVID-19 is going to be with us for a long time yet, even though hopefully uh, the infection rate has now, now peaked? I wish I had a crystal ball to answer that question. It's the question on every analyst and economist and healthcare person's mind at the moment. My own view is that it's with us for a very long time still, and I think we'll come to learn to live with it, um, with, you know, social distancing and hygiene precautions being, you know, the, our normal modus operandi, the way we live. Um, I, I hope in that context that SARS-CoV-2, this virus that causes COVID-19, becomes like the other four coronaviruses infections that we've probably all had, Alex, that you and I have certainly had, which caused the common cold, um, and that we know how to treat them, uh, we know how to prevent them, we understand when there's seasonal risk, um, and we can, you know, we can live with it quite normally and manage it. Of course, there is always risk and exposure, particularly in this disease, for the elderly and those living with chronic illnesses. And so that is a frightening future, but I think it's a realistic one. I think we have a long, slow, dragging, um, you know, continuation of COVID-19. The big question here is the vaccine. We've heard very positive developments from the three main contenders leading the vaccine race. The Oxford vaccine, the Moderna vaccine out of Boston, and then the Pfizer vaccine. These three seem to be leading the clinical trials in human, uh, human trials. And we're seeing good early safety data and also good evidence of antibody formation. By the way, that doesn't mean that the vaccine will be effective. It could mean that those antibodies disappear very quickly. It could mean you need a booster for the vaccine. It could mean that you need the vaccine seasonally every year like we do for the influenza, where there's a viral mutation in the influenza and you need a different strain of vaccine every year. Um, so we don't know whether it confers lasting immunity yet, but the early signs are very positive. And, you know, insofar as timing is concerned, there'll be such global demand for this vaccine. Uh, I don't think it's likely we get anything before the second quarter of 2021. I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that it comes much sooner. Um, and I know that our Department of Health is making inroads to ensure that South Africa is on the list of uh, economies and healthcare systems that's able to access the virus. I think the trials that are being run as part of the Oxford vaccine trials, the multi-center trials in both Joburg at Wits and in Cape Town at UCT, it's very positive that we're involved in those trials because it does mean we're engaging directly 
with the Oxford group who've, who've uh, developed this vaccine. Inside COVID-19 from Business. Yusuf Abramji is the founder of Tax Justice South Africa. You're making your voice heard now, Yusuf, but I've been receiving a lot of feedback from many people on the cigarette ban. It is something, though, that you've been focusing your attention on. Before we go into the big court case tomorrow, the whole idea of Tax Justice SA last time we spoke was to actually rally South Africans against organized crime. How big a part of organized crime is illicit tobacco? Hello, Alex. It's massive. We are talking of millions and millions of rands being pocketed by these criminals every day. Right from day one of the lockdown, when the government announced a ban on tobacco products, we raised our concerns because we knew even pre the lockdown that the illicit trade was thriving. An average of about 35 million rand verified by Africa Check subsequently is being lost to our fiscus every day in sin taxes alone. It's interesting numbers there. 35 million a day. We've had, what, 19 weeks now of lockdown? Lockdown? Yes. In terms of the overall losses, we are talking of about, what, three, four billion rand already. And that is in direct taxes alone. So we know the commissioner of SARS at Kiswete is on record as saying that the losses from the alcohol and the tobacco taxes will run into billions and billions of rands. So I can't even understand the thinking behind this particular ban. And despite the lack of medical evidence giving a correlation between COVID-19 and smoking, one cannot understand why government is still adamant to continue with the ban on cigarette products. Now, you're aligning with the court case that's going to be heard tomorrow in the Western Cape High Court. You've issued a supplementary affidavit. Why are you doing it and what exactly did you say in your affidavit? Well, we were approached by the applicants, namely British American Tobacco, JTI, the South African Informal Traders Alliance, a number of individuals to ask us about the extent of the illicit trade. Let's not forget Tax Justice South Africa has been focusing on the illicit trade in all facets of the market, including alcohol, fuel, the counterfeit goods industry, textiles, and so on. And we were asked a few weeks ago whether we were in a position to provide a supporting affidavit to highlight the illicit trade, which we gladly did because we believe that the illicit trade is continuing to flourish The courts need to make a decision, and that is why we are supporting the application brought in the Cape Division of the High Court, which will be heard tomorrow and on Thursday, and we highlight the extent of the trade. We know that the UCT has come up now with a second result of a survey showing that which brands are the most popular, showing how cigarettes are being shared, showing how organized crime is benefiting. Okay, so the big story here is why. Why, with so much evidence, Cornel van Valbeek, the professor from UCT, has given us the information. We've heard from Talita Snakers on her book, Johan van Lochrenberg on his book. We've seen on carte blanche. We've had you telling us time and time again what's going on. Why does it continue? I'm very suspicious. I have no proof to indicate that politicians are making money. In the absence of some proof, one can only imagine that they are clearly stupid. And I'm sorry, I'm going to be very blunt here, but clearly government hasn't thought out a plan here. We know that Minister Dlamini Zuma has been one in the forefront of being against the anti-smoking lobby right to when she was Minister of Health up to today. And it appears that that seems to be the sentiment. Government, even in the court papers in the BAT application, have not given any proof of a correlation between smoking and COVID-19. We know that the World Health Organization 
if they were so adamant that there's a correlation, why are we the only country in the world with a smoking ban? Surely there must be something that government is trying to achieve here. The ban is causing massive, massive damage to our economy. We stand to lose about 300,000 jobs in the market, in the tobacco industry. And these 300,000 workers, some of them, I believe, already starting to lose their jobs, are down and out. And I think, really, this ban, again, is benefiting no one. And one cannot understand the rationality behind the law. And I hope that the Western Cape High Court will declare this particular ban not only irrational and unlawful, but completely unconstitutional. How big is the illicit economy? Massive. It's massive. We are talking of organized syndicates. We are talking of large groups that are infiltrating the market. We are talking of smuggling from our neighboring countries that is rife. Do you have any understanding on how big the illicit economy or organized crime is in South Africa in financial terms? Well, you know, post the lockdown, we estimated that they were making about between 35 to 40 million rand a month lost to the fiscus, rather a day. Over a period of a year, last year, we looked at it, uh, even in my previous capacity as the spokesman for the Take Back the Tax campaign, about 8 billion rand in cigarettes alone was being lost every year. That is how big it is. The alcohol illicit trade is running probably into three or four times that number. So the illicit economy generally is running into billions and billions of rands. But what is very concerning to me is that even on your show, even where somebody comes on a public media platform and concedes that he was involved in smuggling, concedes that he was involved in money laundering, there is no action being taken. So I have to ask, where's the willpower by our authorities to bring these people to book? There's no consequences. So I think the law enforcement agencies need to get their act together if we're serious about fighting the illicit trade. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Well, very exciting news coming out of Signia, whose founder Magda Wetzikcha is with us now. You guys are doing innovative stuff, Magda. Do you see yourselves as a big disruptor? We'll talk about this latest innovation in a moment, but is that what gets you up in the morning? Absolutely. <laughs> I look for new products. I look for new themes, trends, ideas. So, you know, we've had a Fourth Industrial Revolution Global Equity Fund. We've had the FANG Fund. Last year we launched the Signia Oxford Science Innovations Fund. And now the latest addition to the family is the Health Innovation Global Equity Fund. So yes, definitely an innovator. And that's again the time. It sounds, I suppose, a little opportunistic, but actually COVID-19 is changing everything. You know, I think COVID-19 is a catalyst for rethinking a lot of things. And, you know, one thing, particularly with my exposure to Oxford Sciences Innovation, has been this exposure to the healthcare sector. You know, the market cap of the top five largest pharma companies outstrips the size of the entire JSC. Are they companies that you're going to be investing in in this new Health Innovation Global Equity Fund? Yes. So the idea is 97% of the fund is in the listed space, investing in companies primarily in the healthcare sector. But the fund also has a mandate to expand into anything that's groundbreaking R&D, kind of in life sciences, biotechnology, nanotechnology, IT, genetic engineering, 3D printing. So, you know, anything that is new in the field of medicine and provision of healthcare. 
And then, you know, interestingly enough, obviously we looked at COVID-19 and there is a tilt to the fund in the sense that at least 50% of the fund will be invested in companies which are involved either in COVID-19 vaccine development or in treatment therapies or in testing for COVID-19. What about looking ahead, though? Is this COVID-19 perhaps just a flash in the pan that maybe once that's over, once the pandemic's over, things will go back to normal and the investment universe will then revert elsewhere? Alec, I think that COVID-19 is a wake-up call to the whole world because it has highlighted a lot of things. It has highlighted inequality. It has highlighted the inadequacy of healthcare provision in developed markets, never mind emerging markets, but developed markets. The IMF loan, do you think it's a good or a bad thing? Oh my God, Alec, I'm so pleased that they will only lend us $4.3 billion and not more without conditions. They were in South Africa flogging their wares. They wanted to lend us more money, but any further lending would come with associated conditions of having to cut public service, which obviously ANC is not going to do. If I look at the future of the rent, and all I'm seeing is depreciation and further weakening, if we start borrowing in dollars, we are heading for a sovereign default within five years. So the very fact that we are unable to borrow in dollars without committing to conditions which ANC is not going to commit to is a savings grace and savings grace for future generations. Wow. Well, thanks as always for giving us your insights here. Just to close off with going back to the fund, because it is an exciting development and, mm-hmm. and unusual in South Africa. How have they performed these stocks, these no. health stocks? I like incredibly well, but there is a little bit of a timing issue right now. So you just need to strip through the noise. Can you give us any update on the Oxford vaccine? So there was quite a lot of media coverage around it in the UK last week. And basically they think that they've got 80% probability of being successful. Obviously AstraZeneca is manufacturing millions and millions of doses. And it will be a two-dose vaccine. It will be an annual vaccine. Those are the predictions, that it's an annual vaccine, two-dose vaccine, and 80% probability of it being successful and available by September. Wow. But there's no benefit in the short term. However, thereafter, the company will benefit. Indeed. No, no, no. Oxford is not making any money out of the vaccine. So Vasitech, which owns the IP and signed the agreement for the manufacturing of the vaccine with AstraZeneca, which is a pharmaceutical company which we are including in our unit trust, will make absolutely no profit, receive no royalties until 12 months after the World Health Organization no longer regards COVID-19 as a pandemic. And only then will receive royalties and only then will AstraZeneca be permitted to make a profit. But a large number of companies working, particularly American companies working on the vaccine, have already announced that this is a for-profit initiative. (laughs) They intend to sell it at a huge premium. Trust Americans. This has been episode 68 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights that are featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or on our app. 
Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.